Well, I'm loving these Wednesday nights. There's a, there's a vibe that I am really, really enjoying. And so there's nothing really, you know, nothing fancy on Wednesday night. We just kind of, Greg and the team lead us in worship. And don't they, I mean, isn't it sweet? Wow. And then we just start diving in to scripture. Then we'll spend some time in prayer at some point tonight. And I go away just energized and blessed. So next week, um, we are, it's going to be a unique night in that we are going to spend time um, in worship and in lots of prayer, we'll be sharing the word interspersed in the midst of all that. But we're going to wait on the Lord. We're going to pray for people who need prayer. Today we did our prayer walk and we prayed for numerous people who need healing. They're asking for healing. One, uh, one gal is getting a, a lung transplant. Um, and golly, there's just a few. But on Sunday, I'm going to invite... You know, just people from the church come this Wednesday, and that would be next week, Wednesday. And, and we want to pray for everyone, just everyone that has a need, whether it's a physical thing or a spiritual thing or a family problem, whatever it is. Uh, we want to pray. We want to really get in with the Lord and bring our issues to him. And we're going to do that in the context of sweet worship. And let's just see what the Holy Spirit does next week. I think it's going to be amazing. So let's pray. Lord, we, um, we open up our hearts to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As Surely, Lord, he would deliver the truth of your word to us. Lord, your word declares that... Um, that when Jesus would ascend, he would send the comforter, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, who would lead us and guide us into all the truth. And so, Lord, let the truth of, of this chapter in Romans chapter 3, uh, let it uh, unfold to us in a way that will bring encouragement and, uh, and revelation to us about your goodness and your grace and about our predicament. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So if you've been here with us for these uh, few weeks that we've been going on Wednesday nights, then you know that the first three chapters are, are all really an indictment of mankind. And uh, the charge is sin. That's the charge against us. And the punishment for sin is eternal. It's eternal death. And there, there isn't one person, save Jesus, who isn't guilty. And so all of mankind stands guilty before God. So the, the first three chapters are like a, a spiritual MRI. God's just putting the machine over us and revealing like, whoa, that is not a good report. Not at all. We are all terminal. And so, chapter 1 declared that the revelation of creation, that is God speaks day and night through what's been created, through the stars in heaven, through the sun that makes its way across the sky, that he declares to all people that he is great and that he is wise, so that no one uh, is, uh, has an excuse. And, and so, and that's speaking of the, um, the heathen, you know, the nasty sinners, the ones who do the nasty things. That's chapter one. And then, but then chapter two, he declared that the inner witness inside of humans, that the law that God has written upon every human heart, that's, that's vocal, internally vocalized by the conscience, that that condemns those who applaud virtue and who, you know, uh, try and portray themselves as virtuous. They're condemned by the inner witness inside of them. Tonight in chapter 3, it's going to reveal that the very commandments that those 
super self-righteous Jews boast in. They boast in the commandments, the law, the prophets, and all of it, that the very things they boast in are what condemn them. So, the sooner we face the truth about ourselves, the sooner we can receive the remedy, and there is a remedy, and that's the great news, right, in Romans. So when God points out the fact that we are sinners, he's not name-calling, he's not, uh, uh, you know, he's not putting us down, it's reality, he's giving us reality. And so the sooner that we embrace reality, the better, because reality doesn't change. It stays the same. Reality wins. And so if we adjust ourselves to reality, then we're, we will be blessed. So true story. This is from, actually, it's a couple dec- decades ago now, but in Dallas, Texas, this is from an API story. Uh, the article said a seventh-month-old infant was severely bitten and crushed to death by an eight-foot-long pet python that crawled into her crib Police said the huge reptile, which escaped its glass cage in the living room, was due for its biweekly feeding, which was usually a hamster, and probably was hungry. So this, this python, this huge python, is hungry, and he escapes from his glass case. And, um, and so slithers into the baby girl's bedroom, and uh, the article says the asphyxiation process may have taken five minutes Uh, or longer, and the snake prevented the baby from screaming by squeezing the breath from her lungs. And the victim, Tony Lynn Dubow, um, who they purchased the snake as as a family pet, and so they discovered the infant girl uh, just a short time after the snake struck, the article says, The husband came running in, found the snake curled up on a wooden shelf above the baby's crib, and authorities said Dubot became hysterical. He grabbed the python, and he wrestled it into his bedroom. He stabbed it with a knife, then shot it multiple times with a 25 caliber pistol, pistol, and then severed its head with a kitchen knife. And so I share this, you know, rather horrifying story because it helps us understand a biblical, a bi- biblical concept. We don't, people in general don't struggle with talking about the love of God. We really don't. People, they, they enjoy that. They like thinking of God as being a loving God. And God is love. There's no question. First John 4, 8, God is love. But people struggle greatly with talking about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Romans eleven twenty two. when we get there, it'll tell us that we are to behold both the mercy and the severity of God, that we shouldn't disconnect them, that we should always seek to worship the Lord and understand the Lord in truth, in spirit and in truth, like Jesus said. So, if the father of the seventh-month-old infant was justified in killing that snake, how much more is God justified in judging sinful, snake-like people who heartlessly devour others? And that is the story of humanity. Why does God put up with rape and murder and lies and terrorism and sexual abuse and depravity and, and every you know, everything you can possibly, why does he put up with it? Why does he put up with the the madness of the human condition? Well, the answer is he won't always. There's a limit to it. It's coming to an end. So there's a clue as to why God puts up with all of this. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here's the the phenomenal thing. Amazingly enough, God doesn't want sinners to perish. He doesn't want sinful people like us to go to hell, to be eternally damned. 
So somehow, though God is repulsed by sin and eternally opposed to the wickedness of humans, he still desires to save them. God will one day bring sin to an end forever. It'll be done. How do we know? Daniel prophesied it. Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are, decreed, are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So to put an end to sin, that day is coming. God is very aware of it, but we're still dealing with it. So... God is irrevocably opposed to sin, and thus it will be destroyed. But here's where it gets a little bit tricky. You know, we often say, I've said this, you know, God loves, uh, hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. And there's a, there is a bit of truth to that, but it, it's not quite, there, there's more, there's a nuance to that. So, the distinction between sin and sinner isn't quite so, so clear. You see, not only um, am I a person who's victimized by sin, and we all are to one degree or another, but we are victimizers. We are the snake. Not only am I a victim of sin, but I am a perpetrator of it. And this is the realization that Paul wants people to come to. That's it. And it's a tough sell for humans. It really is. I mean, people will be, oh, I've made mistakes, and I've done, yeah, and I did this, and, and, and so on. People will admit that, you know, kind of that servicey level of, yeah, I did, you know, some things. But they won't admit willingly, initially, of God's, you know, of God's assessment of the reality of our condition. So until we do accept that assessment, then we won't receive the solution. So when you go to a jeweler and you are looking at diamonds to buy for your sweetheart, and, and you go to the jeweler and they lay out a velvet cloth, and what color is that velvet cloth? It's black. And they lay down that $30,000 diamond you're going to buy for your wife. Or that $100 cubic, what do they call that? It's cubic zirconium that they put on them. And, and it causes that, the, the, the glory of the diamond to just jump out at you. It's so beautiful against that black backdrop, isn't it? Well, Romans 1 through 3 is the black velvet backdrop against which he is placing the gospel of the diamond, or the gospel of the diamond, the gospel of the diamond of the gospel. Thank you. All right, so Romans 3, verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? Okay, that's a great question. What advantage has the Jew? And Paul says, or asks then, and what is the value of circumcision? So remember last week in chapter 2, uh, that, that religious rituals and rites and, and outward signs like baptisms and circumcisions, they have no value apart from the inward reality of salvation, an actual relationship with God. Those, those externals don't do anything for you. So there's no baptism or church membership, no amount of church liturgy and ceremony can do anything toward your salvation. They are impotent in that regard. So they don't deal with the sin issue. The sin issue is as deep as we are. And so, as a matter of fact, if you haven't received Christ and you aren't born again, then these rituals and these religious uh, rites and so on, they're actually strikes against you. 
Rather, you know, we think we're gaining points. You're actually going the wrong way in God's eyes. So God says in the last chapter, you know, you're relying upon your circumcision, you know, to be, to get my favor. And I'm telling you that it's actually working against you. So God is not asking anyone to join anything or, you know, go through this ritual or do that class or whatever. God's asking the lost sinner to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. That's God's message to every human on the planet who has not yet received Christ. And so it's only then that the sinner is no longer separated from their creator. And until a person does that, God really doesn't have anything else to say at that point. And so you're say, after you're saved, the Lord will begin to you know, show you what life is like walking with Jesus and so on. And yes, you'll be baptized. And somebody on Sunday say, man, I've, I've known the Lord for a while and, and I've you know, been a little inconsistent in my walk with God. And I, man, I'm tired of that. I want to be consistent. And, and I feel like I need to be baptized. Should I be baptized? Yes, you should be baptized. Absolutely. Next Sunday, we're going to have a baptism. And so he's going to be baptized. And, and so, man, God begins to shape our lives at that point, right? So, did you know that the first thing, if you were to go, if we were to transport back a couple thousand years to Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount, and we were going to make our way uh, to the temple, we would come into the temple court, courtyard. You know what the first thing is in the temple courtyard? Before you can get anywhere else, the first thing is the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. So there's no approaching God apart from the shed blood of an innocent animal. Now you flash forward to us and there's no coming to God. There's no approaching God until you come to the first thing in approaching God, the altar of sacrifice, the cross, the cross of Jesus. So if you're here tonight and you're looking for some special you know, something from God, and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you've never repented of your sin, then listen, you, you can't bypass the first step. So, that's why Paul, by the way, said to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. The Corinthians in Greece, all the philosophers and the guys who want to talk philosophy and religion and the latest trends and the latest philosophical ideas. And Paul's like, I want to talk about Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. And that's all I'm going to talk about. I got one string on my guitar and I'm going to play that sucker. <laughs> so... Paul anticipates the Jews' question, if, if circumcision can't get me points with God, then what advantage do I have as a Jew? So that's, that's, Paul's anticipating that question. What advantage is there then? So verse two, the answer. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Again, Paul anticipating the question. What if, some, what if some of the Jews were unfaithful? Well, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So, so in other words, even, if, even though you don't understand the reason that the law was given, that the oracles of God were given to you, the fact remains that God gave it to you and you are uniquely blessed. I mean, that's a blessing that God chose you to give the law to. And even throughout the, the, the uh, history, the Jews missed the reason for the law, which was to show them their sin and their need for the Savior. They nonetheless, they have benefited 
as being recipients of the law. Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Did you know that when the bubonic plague swept across Europe, killing one out of every three people, if you can imagine that, the Jewish population was virtually untouched. And the reason was, in keeping the law, in following the Torah, the scriptures, the Jews were protected from the plague due to their hygienic practices. Throughout history, the Jews have done relatively, relative to the rest of people groups, done relatively well financially. Why is that? Because they followed the principles of scripture. So yes, there's advantages to receiving the word of God, for sure. The same holds true to our country when you think about it. There are certain principles which, if we hold to them, they will be great benefit to us. I think of one major one, Genesis 12, 3, where God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So God telling Abraham, you know, the nations out there who bless you, I'm going to bless them. If they curse you, I'm going to curse them. And this is a large reason, I think, why we have been a blessed nation. Now, we're not as supportive of Israel as perhaps we once were. And that's sad. And if we pull away, um, I think it's going to be a dark time. So, does Israel's faithlessness, Paul's asking the question, does their faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? Even though you guys were given the law and, and, you know, and a lot of you guys disregarded it in terms of what it was really for, did that nullify God's faithfulness? Paul answers, verse 4, by no means. Let God be true and everyone else a liar, as it is written, though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show, or unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So, so let me just kind of boil this down. Paul is, is anticipating another question if our unrighteousness, by contrast, commends the righteousness of God, if it brings him more glory, that seems to be what Paul is saying, should we then be judged by our unrighteousness? So, so if my unrighteousness, through my unrighteousness, God is being glorified because he's being faithful and showing his character, then I shouldn't be judged for my unrighteousness, should I? Because it's glorifying God. Now, Paul, he addressed that same issue in Romans chapter 6. Uh, remember this in Romans chapter 6, where Paul essentially says, um, you know, should I, if, if my sin causes the grace of God to multiply, to abound, where sin abounds, grace does abound much more, right? So sin, grace, lots of sin, lots of grace. So therefore, I should sin. I mean, that, that's kind of what, what the thinking was. So, so if through my sin, God is glorified by gracing, gracing, gracing me, then why shouldn't I purposely sin? Why shouldn't I, you know, do whatever? Because God is going to be glorified because of all the grace he has to show me. And Paul says, foolish, numbskulls, by no means, and he says it again right here, Romans 3, 6, by no means, you're crazy, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So again, just pushing that argument further. If my lie abounds to his glory, why should I be condemned? And why not do evil that good may come? 
As some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul was accused of this. Because he was a preacher of grace, they accused Paul of of hating the law. And they accused Paul of, of pushing people to sin. It's okay to sin. Just do whatever you want. It's okay. Because the more you sin, the more grace is going to be poured out on you. The more glory God is going to get from you. So just do whatever you want. So Paul just drives that argument to its logical conclusion. And this is called an argumentum absurdum. It's absurd. If sin magnifies the glory of God, then the more sin, the more glory. And and Paul condemns that mentality. The ends do not justify the means. So verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So, do Jews have a better position than other sinners in relation to salvation and justification? Paul says, nope, they don't. Not at all. There are some people out there who teach a two-tiered salvation, that there's two paths to God. One is through Jesus that the Gentiles take. The other is that the Jews have a special uh, favor from God because they're his chosen people. And that's not true. Paul refutes that right here. The Jews need Jesus just like everyone else. There is no Jewish person, no matter how religious they might be, that will ever be saved apart from their faith in Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. So, whatever smoke screens have been put up by the heathen or the, you know, the so-called virtuous people or the, the Jews... Hebrews 1, 2, 3, it blows it all away. The heathen are convicted by creation itself, the self-righteous hypocrite by their conscience, and the self-righteous Jew by the commandments. So all people everywhere for all time are on the same footing before Almighty God. Jew, Gentile, red, yellow, black, white, there's no difference. All people are sinners before God. God has spoken clearly to every generation throughout all history, leaving all people for all time without excuse. So, (laughs) woo, verse 10. Paul begins quoting here from the Psalms. If you, if you don't, I mean, if you're just not feeling so good about yourself right now, and you're, I mean, your self-esteem isn't just swelling to just magnificent proportions, well, here we go. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Feeling good right now. Man, the Bible's judgy. We've been saying it. It's so judgy. Sin destroys humanity. It's cruel. It's vicious. It's wrong. My own sin is no less... That is me. This is a picture of me apart from Jesus. So God is understandably filled with righteous indignation against sin. And so there's only one way 
that sin can be dealt with. There's only one way that sin can be appeased, that God can be appeased. It's through, and this is a theological word, and we'll get intimate with this word through the study, but it's propitiation. Propitiation, helasmos. So, let me just illustrate it for you. The children of Israel, you, a lot of you know this story, they had been delivered from bondage uh, uh, and slavery in Egypt, and they were on their way to the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey and uh, filled with wonderful blessing. But during their exodus, they began to complain, and the sin of complaining led to suffering as they were attacked by poisonous snakes. Uh, there's a theme tonight, snakes. So here comes the poisonous snakes, and suffering then led to sorrow, and sorrow led to them crying out to Moses, who in turn cried out to God, who then told Moses to make a brass what? A brass snake and place it on a pole in the center of the camp, right? And all the people, all they would have to do, the people who were snake bitten, who had the venom coursing through their veins, the venom that would kill them, all they had to do is look at the brass serpent, the snake on the pole. And if they would look at the snake, that simple look of faith would save them. They didn't, have to, they didn't have to crawl up to the pole. They didn't have to, you know, genuflect to the pole. They didn't have, all they had to do was lift their eyes to the bronze serpent on the pole and they would be saved. So it says in John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, Jesus, be lifted up. That whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. So we are the snake-bitten ones. Propitiation is God wielding the knife the instrument of death upon the snake, the brass serpent, Jesus, instead of upon me, instead of upon you. That's the story of the cross. Jesus Christ became uh, for us sin. The, uh, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous, righteousness of God in him. So Jesus, the, the sinless lamb of God, became sin in order to take the punishment, the wrath of God himself. So instead of God smashing a world that snake infested, he turned to his innocent son and laid upon him the iniquity of all of us. And I mean all of us. I mean the worst sinner that you can imagine. I mean those brutal Hamas barbarians who did unspeakable things to the Jewish people just a few months ago. Those sins were laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Luke 18 says that two men went up to the temple to pray. And the one was a Pharisee, the other was a publican. And the Pharisee stood and he prayed with himself, 
And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, uh, extortioners and unjust and adulterers or even like that publican I see over there. And I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I possess. And, and, you know, and he just goes on and on. And the publican, the sinful publican, the, you know, the, the guy working for Rome who's collecting taxes from the Jews and, and, and willingly extorting Jews through the Roman, you know, they, they were hated by everybody. And, and, and so the publican is standing afar off. And this publican wouldn't, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he, he smote his breast. He just pounded his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says to his disciples, which one of these two men went home justified before God? The Pharisee tithes who fasts twice a week, boasts of, you know, not committing these various sins and so on, or that despicable publican who said, God, have mercy. Jesus said to his disciples, everyone who exalts himself will be brought low. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of human nature. But the prayer of the publican, the tax collector, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It begins with God. It ends with sinner. But right in the middle of that prayer is the, the term be merciful. It's the verb form of halasmas or propitiation. This is the point. There's only one way that the sin issue can be dealt with, can be propitiated. And so... Every single person is essentially in one of two categories. Either you're in the Pharisee camp, that you're relying on your own righteousness, you feel that you're a good person, a good enough person at any rate, or you're the publican, grateful that Jesus is standing between God and your sin. And that's the only two categories of people in the world. So Paul finishes the diagnosis in verse 15, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So, you know, I know this raises so many questions and probably you guys have, have wrestled with these to one degree or another. But doesn't it make you think about you know, what about the, the devoted religious people in other religions, in other lands? What about the Hindu? You know, that they're so uh, committed to their religion. They crawl on their hands and knees until they're bloody. They, they jab steel rods through their cheeks in order to, to suffer and, you know, and experience suffering to relate to others who suffer. Aren't they seeking God? And Paul says, no, they're not. Or the, the Tibetan monks who dedicate their lives to simplicity and celibacy, and surely they're seeking God. They're praying every day. And Paul says, they're not. Or what about the Muslims who have their disciplined routines, praying five times a day? And Paul says, no. This is the stuff where you go, man, Lord, but they seem so sincere. It's got to count for something, doesn't it? So what's the deal then with the Hindu Lord? Well, perhaps he's seeking 
alleviation from guilt or some maybe recognition from his peers or personal enlightenment or whatever, but he's not seeking the true and living God. That's for sure what he's not doing. What about the Tibetan monks? They're seeking not God, maybe they're seeking peace, maybe a higher consciousness, maybe an emotional experience, but they're not seeking the true and living God. What about the Muslims? Well, perhaps they're seeking their reward. Maybe it's personal pride, but they're not seeking the true and living God as revealed in the Bible. And because men, women, humanity doesn't seek God, what does God do? He seeks man. That's what God does. God seeks the Hindu and the Buddhist and the Muslim and the pagan and the Catholic and the Protestant. I mean, there's people in all the religions that don't have a relationship with Jesus. God is the God who seeks sinners. The Son of Man has come, Luke 19.10, to seek and to save that which is lost. The diamond is beginning to shine. So, People can't attain to righteousness by the law. The law doesn't lift you up, doesn't make you righteous, no matter how hard you try to keep it. it is, in fact, it's the opposite. It's like jumping out of an airplane. Instead of grabbing the parachute, you grab a bag of cement. That's what it's like trying to earn your way with God. So what is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul tells us, our last verse tonight, verse 20. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law doesn't provide salvation for man. It reveals sin to man. Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus so that we might be justified. Our school teacher. When we're, when we're, you know, receiving from the law and learning, you know, these commandments and so on, and maybe it's from our heart that's telling us whatever, but that's a teacher that's saying, you need Jesus. This class, you can't, this class won't get you in. It'll ready you, it'll get you ready for the one who will usher you into the eternal kingdom. So if you can be taught through the law, through your pre-Jesus days, then that law is gonna hand you off to the Lord who's gonna save you. The schoolmaster in, in Greek culture was the, the household servant who escorted the child to the uh, place of instruction. And so it delivers the child, brings them there. The law shows us where we fail to meet God's standards. It makes us realize how our sins separate us from our God, how impossible it is to, to be righteous uh, on our own uh, and so on. The law shows us our need for Jesus. And so after revealing all of this in, in humanity's pathetic situation, Paul he introduces the diamond in the multifaceted diamond of the gospel called justification. Justification is a legal term. So, you know, this is the theology lesson in addition to propitiation. We're going to learn all these words through this. But it means a lot more. Justification means a lot more than just pardon or forgiveness. Justification means being declared righteous as though we had never sinned. When a person becomes a Christian, they are justified for God, before God, and it as, is as though they had never, ever sinned before. The record is wiped totally clean and I mean completely. 
It doesn't matter how deep the stain of sin had been in your life to that point. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to get every last vestige of the stain out. I heard this story, I don't know if it's true or not, but there was an English guy there in England. He was driving his Rolls Royce and, um, and he had it shipped across the English Channel. He, he wanted to do some driving, some touring through France. And in the midst of his driving tour in France, the rolls broke down. So the man calls the dealer back in London and says, hey, the rolls I bought from you guys is broken down. And, uh, and the guy from Rolls says, we will take care of it immediately. And, uh, and within an hour, there was a small team there at the broken down Rolls Royce. And uh, they took the rolls apart, they repaired it, they returned it uh, to England. Eventually the guy was done with his tour and following the completion of the tour, the English guy's home, he's waiting for the repair bill from, from rolls. And, uh, and he waited and he waited for a month, he didn't receive anything. So he calls the dealership and says, hey, I've been waiting for months now and I still haven't gotten a bill from you guys for your services. And the guy on the phone says, a bill for what? A bill for the repairs that you did on my rolls in France. And the guy says, sir, we have no record of any repairs being done to your Rolls Royce at any time. Thank you. That's justification. It's as if it never broke down. God says, the moment you come to Christ, you're, the past is gone. The old is gone. The new has come. You see, God doesn't say, <laughs> I guess I'll let you into heaven <laughs> because I feel sorry for you. I'll just have to overlook your sin and your depravity and come on in, but let's, let's go through the side door, you know, we're not glad everybody's going to see you. We'll get you in, but it's not like that. That would be a violation of the holy character of our God. In, in other words, if God did that, he, he wouldn't be God. So there's no side door or back door to heaven. There's one big giant front door that you are gonna come through. And he will have you paraded right through Main Street. And how is, how is that even possible? And the answer is justification. Because of what Christ accomplished at the cross, that's propitiation, God is able to legally and judiciously declare us justified. It, this isn't a little, you know, he didn't Mickey Mouse it. He didn't, this isn't a workaround. No, legally, judiciously declares us justified through our faith in Christ. Our sins are washed away. So 2 Peter 1.11 says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not an impoverished, pathetic crawl into the, you know, into the kingdom. No, richly, I mean glorious, joyful, head held high, happy as you possibly could be to the delight of everyone there. You're coming in. That's the idea. This is the glory of the gospel. It's set against the black backdrop of our condition apart from Christ. Are you beginning to see it? God loves you. He wants you to be saved. He wants sinners to be saved. That's really what this whole life is about. So rejoice, Christian, tonight. If you are saved tonight, man, you got every reason to be doing a dance and singing a song as you make your way home. You really do. Let's pray.
Lord, your word is so powerful and searching and delightful and kind of freaks us out at times. <laughs> the, the candor of it. And if some of us were candid with you tonight, we, we would we would have to admit to struggling with some of the diagnosis because we see people doing good things and, and and then it just makes it hard for us to reconcile what your word, what your diagnosis is saying. Because, man, they, they do good things and I love that person. They don't know you, but, I, they, but they're a good person. You know, Lord, we, you know how we just, we have a hard time with that. So, Lord, I, I pray that we wouldn't... Um, that we wouldn't elevate our own, our own logic, our own rationale to be above your revealed word and that we would always hold the truth that you reveal about the condition of people like us, that we would hold that, the darkness of it, that we, there's no one righteous, not even one that it would be set against the glorious gospel that shines so beautiful. All the more beautiful when we understand our true condition. So let us be a people, Lord, that are so full of joy. Lord, even just just now popping into my mind the vision of Jesus with the Pharisee and the, the prostitute comes in and she's weeping and she's washing Jesus' feet and, and the Pharisee is judging the Lord and saying, man, if you knew who she was, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with her. And, and Lord, how you spoke and you told that Pharisee, if you... You, you haven't done anything for me since coming into your home. And this woman serves me and blesses me. Truly, I tell you, the one who is forgiven much loves much. So Lord, let the, let the truth of the reality of our sinfulness, the truth of the reality of the glorious gospel. Lord, let it give birth to incredible love flowing through our lives, to the people in our lives. Let that be the result. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.